John chapter 19, picking it up in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he said, saith unto the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now let's go over to chapter 20 and read the first 14 verses there. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together. The other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not that scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head, and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we indeed might see Jesus in all the scriptures and appreciate what he hath done to redeem a people unto himself, unto God through himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our deacon read for us this morning Deuteronomy, uh, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 16. And I know that was a lot to read. We have covered portions of Leviticus chapter 16 before in terms of what takes place here in John chapter 19 uh, with respect to the crucifixion of Jesus. We talked about how um, the sins were confessed over the head of the scapegoat, the one that was to be led out by the hand of the fit man into the wilderness, and how the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus's head represents sin. It represents the works of men. That's what it says in um, Genesis chapter 3. So we can appreciate how all of Scripture is tied together and the shadows and types and allegories are coming to fulfillment right here in real, in real time as Jesus is suffering on the cross for our uh, sins. Um, with respect to leading the um, scapegoat out into the wilderness upon whom, uh, whose head the um, sins of the people were confessed, 
we can appreciate that sending them out into the wilderness is a way of separating God's people from their sins. In Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, we read, as far as the east is from the west, that's Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he, God, removed our transgressions from us. Now, the east is pretty far from the west because the world is round. You know, it just it's not something that can be quantified, which is what the Lord wants us to appreciate here in terms of uh, him separating our sins from us. In Hebrews chapter 13, he talks about how Christ was led outside of the camp. And going to Golgotha is representative of the wilderness, separating us from our sins. So there are many things that can be learned from Leviticus chapter 16. And we'll go and take a look at that again as we um, proceed here. But what I want us to appreciate um, today in particular is that it is finished. And that's the title of our sermon this morning. It is finished. Um, When the Lord was on the cross, he had seven things to say while he was on the cross. He spoke a word of forgiveness. He spoke to the people and said, spoke to his father and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To the uh, penitent thief on the cross, he spoke a word of salvation. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He spoke to his uh, mother, woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. It's a word of affection, providence, and care for his uh, beloved He spoke a word of anguish, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A word of suffering, which we'll talk about this morning, I thirst. A word of victory, it is finished, which we see also here in our text this morning. And a word of contentment, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So he said seven things, and seven is not a coincidence. Um, We know that seven uh, represents perfection. And so... The Lord is setting perfection before us here in what Jesus communicated unto the people that were within the hearing of the cross. Um, It's interesting to note that he said, it is finished. That was the sixth thing that he said. And last week we talked a lot about the, the Sabbath day being on the seventh day. It's a period of rest because on the sixth day did the Lord finish all of his works and then enter into his rest. And so in the context of that, we have here the Lord on the seventh day is commending his spirit into his Father's hands. He's entering into his rest, having finished everything that he set forth uh, to finish. So let's now um, look at verse 28 of John chapter 19. It says, and after this, after this, after all of these things that have been accomplished, um, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. I want us to appreciate that back in John chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all things that were going to take place, we read there and says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth unto them, and he said, whom seek ye? This is in the garden when he's arrested. He knows everything that is going to happen to him. He knows all of the suffering that's going to take place. He knows about uh, the rejection, how he's going to be spat upon. They're going to smite him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to nail him to a cross. They're going to uh, beat him and humiliate him. They're going to pluck his hairs off his head. Knowing all of those things that lie before him, he nevertheless goes out um, and allows himself to be led to the cross. Now he's looking backwards while upon the cross after having suffering all of these things and knowing that all things were now accomplished in the scriptures up to that point, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he says, I thirst. Oh, by the way, when I'm on the cross, there's yet one more prophecy that needs be fulfilled. So imagine yourself uh, in that uh, state. What would your presence of mind be? (laughs) 
I would not be thinking about, well, gee, many, there's one more thing that's going to happen to me. But I think we can appreciate again that the Lord laid down his life and no one took it from him. He has an incredible presence of mind um, looking over the scope of things. He's very much self-possessed uh, there. He's not being defeated. That This is the methodology by which he will have victory over sin and death and over Satan and rule and reign over all things. So we see him on the cross uh, very much self-possessed and very much a with a presence of mind in terms of everything that is taking place and everything that must needs take place to fulfill all of the scripture. In uh, Psalm 69, verse 21, it speaks about what would take place with respect to Jesus on the cross in this context. In verse 21, we read, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So the Lord, again, fully cognizant of everything that's taking place, is making reference to this scripture here because he knows that when he says, I thirst, what the response is going to be, that they are going to put vinegar on hyssop and they're going to give it for him to drink. So he's fulfilling, uh, ensuring that all scripture be fulfilled. We can appreciate that he did indeed thirst while he was on the cross because Jesus, in whom dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, is fully man as well as he is fully God. So he does thirst. We read other places where he did hunger or where he was weary. So we should appreciate that though he is the God-man, he is indeed fully man and indeed suffering horribly at the hands of men as well as at the hands of God, which we'll talk about in a little bit here. So indicative of the um, uh, depraved nature of man in terms of offering him something so sour as vinegar. In Proverbs 10.26, it says that vinegar as vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes. And so the Lord uh, puts those two things together in terms of uh, what satisfaction one might have drinking vinegar. It's like smoke to your eyes. It's obviously very much of an irritant. So rather than giving something that might actually quench his thirst and be received in a, uh, in a way that is um, um, helpful to him, and relieves any of his suffering. Of course, that is not what he uh, receives. Um, when he says, I'm going to tie this to I, when he says, I thirst, and that they would give him a drink here. I want to tie that to the verse also when he says, it is finished, because there are several things that are meant by that uh, term, it is finished. But in the context of him receiving vinegar, um, I think we should appreciate that everything in the scripture testifies and speaks about Christ, the things that he would do and the things that he would suffer. Um, at the Last Supper, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, um, the Lord says something that is very interesting uh, when he's with his disciples. Um, in verse 29 of 26, there it is. He is um, lifting up the uh, cup in verse 27 says, And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. Verse 29, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth from this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I would suggest to you here that the Lord is, is not... This is just not a benign statement, that there's something that's more involved here. And I would suggest to you that what the Lord is doing is he's taking a Nazarite vow to accomplish the redemption of, um, of his people. And so he makes that statement there. 
um, that he's going to secure the salvation of his people, and that is a, a something that would be consistent with the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is something you can read about in Numbers chapter 6, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses there so we will appreciate what you cannot do once you've taken a Nazarite vow. In Numbers chapter 6, I'll read the first couple of verses there, it says in verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either a man or a woman shall separate themselves to a vow, a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. And so, in verse 4, it says, In all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. So when a person takes a Nazarite vow, as indeed John the Baptist did, he never cut the hairs of his head, which it will talk about in here, nor did he ever eat anything um, which was prohibited by the Nazarite vow. So here we are at the Last Supper, and the Lord is taking a Nazarite vow, saying he's not going to drink any fruit of the vine. So when he's on the cross there, and he's accomplished the redemption of man, he's accomplished everything that he uh, set forth to accomplish, he says, I thirst, and what is given to him would be vinegar, indicative, him receiving it is indicative that he indeed has accomplished that which he vowed to um, accomplish. So in verse 30 of John chapter 19, he receives the vinegar, and then he says, it is finished. So his Nazarite vow is finished. He's accomplished that which he set forth to do in terms of the redemption of men. So in terms of um, um, the outward um, importance of what the Lord has done, we see the completion of a Nazarite vow. We see that he does, in fact, as a man, he does thirst. But there's a spiritual component as well as to um, an individual thirsting. Now, it's been quite some time since we went through the Beatitudes, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord tells us that blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, why would Jesus hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, because sin had been imputed to him. And he says on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he's been forsaken from God because our sins have been imputed to him. And scripture says in in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so um, as we have come to learn that God will judge sin everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in his own son. Now, I don't pretend to understand what it means to have the Trinity separated, but that's what the Scripture says. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So in terms of God pouring out his wrath on his Son, do our sins, we see that 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 takes place. So there's a separation between God the Father and God the Son. And it's a gulf that cannot be crossed because of sin. This we see in Luke chapter 16 with respect to Lazarus and the rich man. There you will recall that the rich man was in a place of torment, and he had asked um, Abraham, in whose bosom Lazarus was, if Lazarus could but dip dip his finger in water and bring that to him and bring him relief. So there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place of suffering, but the primary suffering is due to the separation from God. And so Christ, in that place of suffering from God, 
he's going to be thirsting for righteousness. Um, Jesus was on the cross for six hours. Uh, three hours of it was light. He was suffering as a man. And we see in the three hours of darkness, the wrath of God is being poured out him upon him. And he's suffering terribly at the hands of the Father because of our sins. Um, so we should appreciate that statement. Um, uh, I thirst in the spiritual context that he's hungering and, and thirsting after righteousness. Um, and uh, this, of course, do our sin. Now, in Psalm chapter 42, I'll read the first three verses there. In Psalm chapter 42, um, we read, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Why would Christ be panting after, why would his soul be panting after God? Well, because there's separation between the Godhead. The God has forsaken him because of our sins. Verse 2, My soul thirsteth, for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? When shall Christ Jesus come and appear before God? Well, how about when God is satisfied that the penalty for sin has been paid? In verse 3 here, it says, My tears have been my meat day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? So the Lord upon the cross, he has said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what are the people doing to him? Well, they are mocking him. They are saying, Where is your God? In Matthew 27, verse 43, we see the people doing that. Excuse me, verse 40. Yeah, verse 43. Um, oh, I've given you the wrong reference, and I apologize for that. The verse I'm looking for is a quote from, uh, it's actually Psalm 22 as well, where the people are walking around and they are saying, um, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he delight in him. And so while he's on the cross, he is yet being mocked before the people that God would, would deliver him um, from the cross. All right, so I, I turned to Luke, I'm sorry. That's what I did. Where, where did I say it's 27, what? That's what I said, let me go to 27, 50 first. Okay, there it is. It is uh, Matthew twenty-seven forty-three. I'm sorry. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So while he's on the cross, they are mocking him very much as it says here in uh, Psalm 42 about where is thy God? So back in verse 42, again, we have the question, when shall I come and appear before God? Well, when shall he do that? He shall do that when God is satisfied with the price that has been paid respecting the penalty of our sins. And that's what in, in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning that this is part of the process that is necessary to redeem a people unto God and to make them in the image and likeness of God. So God is pleased with this process. It is the best plan to be brought forward to redeem men to God. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed meaning all of the Christians, he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. In verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. When God the Father was satisfied that the penalty for sin had been paid by Christ, then he shall come into the presence of the Lord. And that's indeed what we see with respect to the Lord here is that after the penalty has been paid, and he says it is finished, 
Then he commends his spirit into the Lord. So he says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge, by the knowledge of, of sin and all of the things that he's suffering, shall my righteous servant, that is Christ, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquity. So the Lord sets before us here that when he is satisfied that Christ has indeed paid the penalty, then he shall come into the presence of the Lord. Now, when the Lord commends his spirit um, unto the Father, uh, we should appreciate the language that's used. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, um, the Lord, it says here, when Jesus, Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Um, we've made a point in the past about Jesus was not out of breath. He spoke very loudly. So when he does indeed um, lay down his life, it's voluntarily. We understand that it wasn't taken from him. The Greek word for yielded up there means to send away. So Jesus is very much uh, in control of everything that is taking place. When he's accomplished everything that he uh, sought to accomplish, then he sends his spirit to be with the Father. It wasn't taken from him like it would be for us. It's very different than what happened with uh, Stephen after he was stoned, who first took care of his spirit, Lord, receive my spirit, and then he said, lay not the sin to their charge. He took care of himself first and then... Uh, uh, sought for forgiveness for the other people. Where Jesus, everything was the opposite. He first takes care of people, and the very last thing that he's done after he has accomplished everything is to um, commend his spirit unto the Lord. Um, when that took place, in Matthew chapter uh, 27, verse 51, we, we read there about the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. The Lord is showing us now that the way to the holiest of holies has now been made open. And um, we see this in John chapter 20 in terms of uh, what has taken place there. In John chapter 20, um, verses 11 and 12, we see that the rock has been rolled away from the tomb. And why would the rock be rolled away from the tomb? Not to let Jesus out, but to let Mary in, to let um, the disciples in so that they could see what has indeed taken place there, that Jesus is not there. And so what does Mary see? What is Mary looking into? She's looking into the holiest of holies. It says there that uh, after she stoops down and looks in, in verse 12, she sees two angels in white. And where are they sitting? The one at the head and the, at the other at the feet. What is in between them? That would be the mercy seat. So what she's seeing is a living replication, um, the living reality of the Ark of the Covenant that was set in the holiest of holies. She's looking at the mercy seat. The mercy seat, you know, was constructed out of a lump of gold, and it had the two cherubims on either end, looking towards the covering that went over the ark, and the priest was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. So she's looking at the real mercy seat. And so she see, that, that is what she sees, and that is what has been set forth before her there. Indicative that we now have access to the holiest of holies, that we are bid by the Lord to come boldly before the throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, telling us what this means and to help us to appreciate it, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Now here's the invitation. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God is inviting us 
to come before the throne of grace and to seek his grace, his help, and his mercy in time of need. I mentioned to you before that, uh, maybe it was a couple weekends ago, we had a number of political people here. Uh, one of the neighbors is running for the local um, office of um, supervisor. So we had the former mayor who was currently on the city council and other city council members were here. And after everything was said and done and everybody left, I thought to myself, you know, I had all of these political people here that run San Mateo. Maybe I should have talked to them about what's going on in town here. Maybe I should have, you know, put some requests before them about, well, you know, you could fix up the library, you could do this over here, and there's uh, these other things you could do. Um, so I felt like I'd lost an opportunity. Um, when you put that in contrast with what the Lord is telling us here, that we can go boldly before the throne of grace of the King of Heaven, I mean, it just... It's not even worthy of comparison. That you might have access to the President of the United States does not compare what it means to have access to he who sits on the throne of glory, to the one by whom and through whom and to whom and of whom are all things, for all things were created of him, by him, and for him. To have access to God um, is just absolutely remarkable, and it's a tremendous um, blessing for us to be able to do that. And we have access to God through Christ because what Christ has done on our behalf. So let me ask you this question. Do you avail yourself of that um, uh, blessedness? Do you avail yourself to um, the Lord? Do you come before the throne of grace on a regular basis, letting your requests be made known unto him with thanksgiving? Um, I confess that I do not do it as often as I should. Um, and, it, and it is there. The Lord has made a way for us to do that. We see Mary going right into her to the mercy seat. We see the veil of the temple rain from the top to the bottom, rent from the top to the bottom, indicative that we are welcome there. We can now go there. Now back to John chapter 19, in verse 30, the Lord says, after he'd received the vinegar, knowing that everything has been accomplished, all of the prophecies have been accomplished up to that point, he says, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Again, we talked about that before. His head just didn't fall over because he was dead. He bows his head, indicative that he has laid down his life, and no one took it from him. So, it says it's finished. Well, what is finished? All of the prophecies, all of the shadows, all of the types, all of the allegories, all of the Proverbs, that speak about what Christ would do, they've all been fulfilled, and they were only fulfilled by Christ Jesus. All of those things have been fulfilled up to the point of death. Isaiah is going to talk about how he was uh, buried with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Well, he hasn't been put into the uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb yet. That has yet to be fulfilled. But in terms of accomplishing everything that's required to redeem man unto God, he has finished it. In terms of reconciling man to God, he has accomplished that as well. It is all finished. When people speak about the Lord coming back and setting up an uh, earthly tabernacle, an earthly temple, and reestablishing the temple sacrifices, and they just, they, they just don't understand what the Lord meant when he says it is finished. It is finished. He's not coming back uh, in turn, uh, to uh, redeem people uh, during some millennial reign. He's not coming back to set up any more sacrificial systems. All shadows and types and allegories have been fulfilled and replaced with the reality. Now, let's take a look at Luke chapter 16. I have spoken about the Day of Atonement in terms of what takes place at the cross uh, in the past. 
There's just a couple more things that I want to mention to us uh, this morning. I was reading through it again this week, and every time I read any portion of Scripture, I, oftentimes the Lord will teach me something else that's in here. You recall in Deuteronomy chapter 18 when it speaks about uh, a prophet is going to come that's going to be like Moses, and then in another verse it says what's going to be like unto God. And how do you reconcile that uh, in any way other than it's speaking of Jesus Christ, the God-man? So when I read Deuteronomy 18 for quite some time, I thought, well, it's speaking of a, a type that's going to come. No, it's not speaking of a type in Deuteronomy 18. It's speaking of Christ himself, because that's the only way that you can understand that. A prophet like Moses, the man, a prophet like God, who is God. That's fulfilled in Christ. So when I'm reading through Leviticus um, the 10th time, uh, I started keeping track of what exactly he's going to make an atonement for. So as I read through it, I saw in verse 6 that the high priest is going to make atonement for himself. He's going to make atonement for his household. He's going to make atonement for the holy place. He's going to make atonement for the altar. He's going to make a atonement for the congregation of Israel. And he's going to make a tabernacle for atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation. He's going to make atonement for six things. So, previous to that, I'd read and I came up with five things. That's verse 33. Those other things, those other six things are scattered throughout. They're in verse 6, verse 16, verse 20, 18, 17. Um, so, those can be found in those verses. There's a shift in verse 32. In verse 33, it says that he's going to make atonement for the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the congregation, the altar, atonement for the priests, and for all the people. He's only going to make atonement for five things. What is missing? He's not going to make atonement for himself. Oh, he must be talking about somebody else here. So, if you read verse 30, it talks about, it says, for on that day, well, I'll pick it up in verse 29, because we should understand that the Day of Atonement takes place on the Sabbath day. This is an exclusive work of the priest. The people don't enter into it. Verse 29 of Leviticus 16. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. You're going to fast on that day. Whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that is sojourneth among you. Verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Here's where it shifts, verse 32. And the priest whom he shall anoint, well, who's the he there? That would be Jehovah up in verse 30. And the priest whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments. Well, that's interesting. This person is going to be anointed by Jehovah. Well, who anointed Aaron? Aaron was anointed by Moses. And it speaks about putting on linen clothes in verse 4, about uh, the high priest would put on his linen uh, breeches in verse 4, in the mitre. And then when he's finished doing what he needs to do, in verse 23 it says, And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. So these linen garments fit prominently. 
And I think we should appreciate in verse 1 here that this was set up, and the Lord tells us in verse 1 that this took place, these instructions were given after the death of the sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. You can read about that in chapter 10, verse 1 of Leviticus. They offered strange fire before the Lord, and God burnt them and killed them because they didn't do things according to the way God said. So it's very important that these instructions be followed. So you can bet Aaron was paying attention when these instructions were given to him. So he's to put his linen breeches on, his linen clothing on, and then when he's finished, he's to take them off. And this priest in verse 32 is going to be anointed by God. As I mentioned that before, Aaron was anointed by Moses. Well, who was anointed by God? Well, that was Jesus Christ. And that was in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. There it says, this is when Jesus has been baptized. And who was he baptized by? But John the Baptist, who was of the Aaronic priesthood. So Jesus is baptized by the priesthood. Verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed by God to fulfill the office of the priesthood. So we see that is set before us here. Now, Supposed to put on linen clothings, and he's supposed to remove them when he's uh, finished. So what do we see taking place in John chapter 20? Um, in John chapter, oh, uh, in verse 40 of John chapter 19, we see that they took the body of Jesus and wound it in a linen clothes with spices as to the manner of the Jews is to bury. So Jesus goes into that cave. He goes into the tomb. He goes into the holy place. And he's uh, wearing linen clothing. Now look over at verse uh, chapter 20, and let's look at verse 6 and 7. John chapter 20, verse 6 and 7. This is very peculiar. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. Verse 7. And the napkin, which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So what is the Lord seeing here? Or excuse me, what are these people seeing here? They are seeing the linen clothing of the true high priest being set up and placed neatly in two different locations. It's not like the clo- like he disappeared through the clothes and they just kind of um, laid flat on the mercy seat. They were um, taken up, they were folded up, they were put neatly in two different places, indicative that what took place there was a deliberate action of God indicating that as the high priest, he has completed everything that was set before him to complete. Now, again, that Jesus was uh, anointed by God and called to do this very thing. In Hebrews chapter 5, the Lord tells us that. I'll read several verses there in Hebrews chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. In other words, the priest is a sinner. And by reason thereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. That's what we read about Leviticus 16. In chapter 6, it says the priest makes an offering for himself. Verse 4, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, 
but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So God said to Moses, pick Aaron as the high priest. And this is true in every pastorship across the country. God has to call a person to be a pastor. So our prayer for um, our sister's church is that this individual whom they are going to set in the office is indeed called of God. Verse 5, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that saith unto him, thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. God the Father has ordained Christ to be the high priest. As he saith in another place, thou art a priest forever, forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, recall Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and became perfect, meaning perfectly qualified to fill the office. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Christ was called to be a high priest. He was ordained by God to fulfill that role, to be the high priest on the day of atonement. Hebrews chapter 10 and now is going to contrast Jesus with the, the high priest. In, John, in, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14, it speaks about the uh, high priest as having to minister on a daily basis. And every priest, I'm reading verse 11 of Hebrews 10, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oft times the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. What the priest was doing, he was a type of Christ, indicative of what Christ would do. All of the animals were types of Christ, the ones that were offered up. And he's, the Lord is telling us here, that system could never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Jesus, by offering up himself one time, has um, taken away sin forever, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. Verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one offering... He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. He says it is finished. There is only one sacrifice that needed to be made, and that was the sacrifice of Christ himself. Again, why people think he's going to come back and set up another sacrificial system is directly contrary to the word of God. Verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that, he said, had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. It's over. Jesus says it is finished. He has accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished to deal with our sins. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's a good memory verse. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And by the way, I've said this before, it is a verse that has been changed in the other Bibles. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is the part that's been changed. When he had by himself, they've taken that out, by himself, purged our sins. 
sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high by himself. It's the, uh, the Day of Atonement is a Sabbath day. It is a day where work is prohibited. We saw scriptures last week where if you work on the Sabbath day, you were to be put to death. The priest worked on that day to make atonement for the sins of, of uh, his people. Here it clearly states that Jesus by himself purged our sins. We had nothing to do with, do with it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When he was done, and he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, in Leviticus uh, 16, it speaks about how God makes atonement for Israel. People question the doctrine of limited atonement versus universal atonement. Leviticus 16 makes it very clear. He was not atoning for the sins of the Parasites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Canaanites. He was making atonement for Israel. And we know what the true Israel of God is, those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have faith in him. So we're done with what I wanted to share with us this morning. It is finished. There is no work yet remaining for God to accomplish in terms of reconciling man to God and God to man. God has completed what he said he would do back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's finished. The Lord Jesus has shed his blood on our behalf, and we are saved and washed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Um, Amen. Amen.